as we continue practicing and thinking about how to pray the Bible, and as, we were, as I was thinking about some of the things that we had covered regarding prayer, I felt like I needed to do some additional study on some of the other passages related to prayer so that I wasn't repeating the same thing, because chronologically, uh, the next few passages were basically that same topic that we looked at two weeks ago, which was the idea of a prayer to God for help in a time of trouble, like with Jacob and Esau. And so I will continue to do further study along those lines. But in the meantime, what I would like us to do is to start working our way through the Psalms and uh, work through that for a while, because I think that the Psalms are great examples of prayer to God, worship to God, things that we can find benefit from in looking at the different phrases and how we can incorporate them into the way that we pray. So that if we say, I'm not sure how to pray, we can turn to a psalm that we've looked at in that given week and say, here's where I can start. I can pray for some of these same things that David or the other psalmist had written. So tonight, I want to continue what we did last week in that last week we looked at Psalm 1, and tonight I want us to turn to Psalm 2. Uh, last week I said there were a variety of different kinds of psalms. You have psalms that are wisdom psalms. Here's why it's wise to follow God. There are psalms of lament. Here's sorrow, uh, calling out to God for help. There are songs of trust. God, in a time of difficulty, I put my trust in you. You're the one who will help me. The one that we're going to look at tonight is classified in various ways. Some would call it a royal psalm because it speaks of God and his anointed. Some would call it a messianic psalm because they see in here prophetic ideas connected with Christ coming as the Messiah. And so we'll think about which of those it properly fits into. Uh, but before we look at the text, let me ask you this. How many of you, feel free to raise your hands, how many of you love being told what to do? Okay. All right. No, no one raised their hands. That's very interesting. I think we all struggle with obedience. We all struggle with the concept of authority. Particularly if you've ever been in the situation where... Uh, perhaps you're at work and there's a question of a promotion and someone else gets that promotion and now you're under this person and you think that should have been your job, then you'll struggle even more with that idea of authority, that idea of, of, of submitting to authority. In the context of what we're looking at here, you have human rulers and leaders and all of those under them who are looking at God's appointed king and they're saying either, I can do the job better, I deserve it more, or just basically, I don't want to follow him. And so as we look at these passages, bear that in mind and, and see, I think, from this psalm that the point of it is this, submit to God's anointed, submit to the Son. So look, first of all, to verse 1. We need to submit to the Son even though, verse 1 people may oppose God. Verses 1 through 3. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And so the first thing that we see here is in verse 1 that they oppose in an uproar. They have a vain idea. The word uproar there is literally the idea of restlessness. 
And so, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You're, you're talking to someone and you can tell that they don't want to listen to you and they start getting restless and, and, and they just want to be somewhere else. They want to do something else. That's, I think, the picture of what the nations are doing here. They're under the authority of God, under the authority of His appointed ruler. They don't want to be under that. They want to be somewhere else. They want to be under their own authority. And when it says they're devising a vain thing... Why is it vain? What do you think he means by vain? Why would it be vain for them to devise their own plan about who should rule over them? Okay, because God determines everything. And has God specifically said who he wants to be their ruler? In this case, yes. So for them to say, but here's my plan instead, is foolish, it's vain, it's empty. Then you look at verse 2. And how do they oppose? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so it's this idea of not just we're sort of restless and, and, and ready to be under someone else, but it's that this idea that they've gathered together, they've taken their stand, they're saying, we're going to change this. For me, this calls to mind uh, the idea of like the Tower of Babel. What happened? The people gathered together to build this tower up to the heavens because they had in their minds, perhaps we can reach God, or perhaps we can get out of God's authority. If we can be as great as God, then we don't have to follow what he wants us to do. And we see what God did in response to that that showed them that their plan was foolish. He confused the languages so that this guy couldn't tell that guy how to stack the bricks and mix the mortar and direct the animals and haul the wood and all the other things they were doing to build this great tower, and they couldn't finish their project. But that gathering together, that opposing God, that spirit of, we're going to gather and plot and scheme and take counsel together, that's what's being described in verse 2. And it's not just that they're they're having a, a planning meeting, it's that they're specifically opposing God and His anointed. We see this a number of times in the Bible. Now, I, I recognize that, for example, Samuel was not anointed of God to be a king like Saul and David and Solomon and so forth, and yet, you remember what happened with the people when they didn't want to follow him? And he was frustrated and he comes to God. What did God say to him? God said... They're not opposing you, ultimately, they're opposing me. But this verse highlights both. They're opposing God, we could say, by opposing the appointed ruler that he's given. And how do they do it? Verse 3 expresses their uh, opposition. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now this is a fascinating thing. When you think of, of government, do you think of government in terms of restriction or in terms of protection. And it's clear that these rulers, these people who are gathered together, are thinking of government in terms of restriction. The government means I can't drive down the sidewalk at 100 miles an hour, and they are cramping my freedom. The government means I can't plant an oak tree right next to my house, and I really want to do that, and so they're restricting my freedom. The government says that I can't go and punch the first person that upsets me when I'm walking down the sidewalk. They're restricting my freedom. But if you look at those things from the other perspective, which is from the idea of protection and enforcing 
uh, fairness and justice, which is what Romans talks about government is supposed to be doing, do we really want people being able to wander around and do whatever they want? No. And yet, from their perspective, they're focused on the restriction rather than the protection that they would find under God's appointed ruler. This is the irony of thinking that true freedom means I can do whatever I want. But Romans 6 in the New Testament clarifies for us, freedom doesn't mean you don't obey anybody. It means that you now have the opportunity to obey a master that isn't going to lead you to destruction. Because what does Romans 6 say? You were slaves to sin, leading to death. Now you're slaves to righteousness, leading to life and a relationship with God. So submit to the Son, even though there will be people who oppose God. Secondly, submit to the Son because God ridicules man's rebellion. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So God laughs at their supposed strength. So here's the picture for me. Braden, come up here for me. Grab my hand. Pull me over. All right, go have a seat. Braden's a strong kid. He could pull some of you over. But, uh, yeah, we can point fingers and, and discuss that <laughs> later. But here's the point. A thousand times greater than the difference in strength between my son and I is the difference between the power of these kings gathered against God and God. So God's looking at them, and God's laughing at them, and God's saying, what foolishness is this that you think that you can oppose me? It says he scoffs at them. Now normally we think scoffing is a bad thing, right? We think that word used in Proverbs, you don't want to be like the scoffer. But in God's position, what other response can he have to the foolishness of man's rebellion against him? He, he laughs at their supposed strength. It says, it describes him as he who sits in the heavens. And that should give us another clue as to the difference between God and us. Where do we sit? We sit on the earth. We sit in chairs. We sit in, we're in limits. God is sitting in the heaven, enthroned in the universe, ruling over all things. And so when we see that, that should remind us that what other response would God have to our attempts to overthrow his rule? But not only does he laugh, but he also speaks in anger. Look at verse 5. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Now, why does he do this? Again, not because this is sinful anger, but God is right to be angry when he has said, this is the way that it will be, and his people, or any people, say, but we want it this way instead. God is right to be angry in that circumstance. God is right to respond in a way that will bring terror and correction and repentance. Consider the message that Jonah brought to the people of Nineveh. It wasn't, God's a really great guy and everything will be okay. What was the message? Repent 40 days. Well, he didn't say repent, but that was the implication. 40 days and the city will be destroyed. God speaks with anger in a sense, I think, to call these people to repentance. What's the message that he speaks in anger? Verse 6, 
he presents his anointed ruler. I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In our society, in our nation, there's sometimes this attitude of, well, here's someone in an elected position, and I don't have to follow them or like them or whatever because I didn't vote for them. That argument won't work here. A, because there's no voting, and B, because God says, here's the one who's the ruler. So it's not a question of, did I get to pick him or not? It's a question of, am I going to obey him and follow after him? But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Uh, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. Uh, it's described uh, by that word in many other places in the Bible. And God's basically saying, this is foolishness for you to oppose me. My anger should call you to repentance. And the specific point of disagreement, the point where there's a problem is this. I've said who the ruler will be. Are you going to listen to him or not? So submit to the Son, even though there are those who will oppose God, and recognizing that God will ridicule such rebellion. But submit to the Son thirdly, because God chooses who will rule. Look at verse 7. This sort of builds on verse 6. The ruler will be God's Son. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, verse 7 is one of those verses where we have to stop and think a little bit about what it means. And the reason for that is this. Is this psalm a messianic psalm? Or to put the question another way, is the son in verse 7 David, one of the other kings, a descendant of David, or Jesus? This is something for us to think about, because a lot of times I think what happens is we start with the New Testament, which is not bad, and then we say, well, this is quoted, for example, in Hebrews 1 and verse 5, to which of the angels as he said, today I have begotten you, in the context of talking about Christ, and we say, okay, well, it's talking about Jesus. But we have to ask ourselves, is that the way that the people who originally heard it would have understand it when it was given in the Psalms in the context of the Old Testament? And I think that the best way of understanding this passage would be this, that it has application to all of the Davidic kings, but the ultimate one who fulfills this is Christ. Let me explain that a little bit further. When it says... I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That language is a language of relationship. God had a relationship clearly with David. He called him a man after his own heart. He had that, that attitude of a father toward a son, this closeness of a relationship. He uses this same sort of language in 2 Samuel 7 in the Davidic covenant connected with the promises that David's descendants would sit on the throne. But... Is there one coming to whom this would finally and fully apply? Yes. Christ is the great and full uh, accomplishment of the things that in these verses were partially accomplished, or we caught glimpses of it uh, with, with these other kings. So, for example, where it says in verse 8, I will give you the nations as your inheritance, 
and the ends of the earth is your possession. Did any of the Davidic kings see the realization of that promise? Did any of them actually experience the ends of the nations being under their rule? The only one who came close to that was Solomon, and even then, though his kingdom was the largest that the nation of Israel had ever been and has been since then, it certainly wasn't to the ends of the earth, was it? And so we look at this and we see, I think, a parallel between this and the argument that Paul makes in Romans 5. Here's the first Adam. Adam sinned. Adam failed. And though he was our representative, he was not a perfect representative. The second Adam, Christ, does it perfectly. Here are Davidic kings. And every time that they would read this psalm, perhaps in the context of the crowning of a new king, they would be reminded of, here's this promise that God has made, here's how we haven't lived up to it, it hasn't been accomplished. And I think this would have forced them to look forward down the road to one who would actually experience the fulfillment of these promises. We see this as well in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Again, did, for example, Solomon carry out justice? Yes, he was the wisest man who ever lived. He accomplished justice for the people. We see that in various examples, not least of which was the story of the the two women and the child. He, He accomplished justice. Other kings that followed also did, to a limited, to a lesser extent, But the only one who will truly rule with a rod of iron is who? Jesus. Revelation 19 and verse 15, he comes with a rod of iron for the ruling over of the nations. And when it says, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware, I think here's the image. Here's these kings gathered together. Here's these who would oppose God and his ruler. The kings of Israel had mixed success in subduing the nations around them. Will Christ have any question of success when it comes to ruling over all of the peoples of the world? No. Like a a steel bar smashing through clay pots, Christ will rule over the nations. Those who refuse to bow to him will be destroyed. Submit to the Son, even though some oppose, because God mocks those who oppose, and because God is the one who decides who the ruler should be, and finally, because the only proper response to these things is that people should repent of their rebellion. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Verse 10 says, show discernment. What does discernment mean? The discerning one, the prudent one, foresees the evil and hides himself. What does that mean? You look ahead to the consequences that are coming down the road if you continue on the course that you're following and you say, I want to avoid those consequences or I want to seek this particular blessing. And so... Uh, the psalmist here is saying, if you're going to show discernment, if you're going to take warning, you're going to look down the road and see what the end result is of your rebellion. And so what does he say in verse 11? Repentance, obedience is shown when they worship in reverent fear. Verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling. 
And this is the tension that we face when we come into God's presence. Here's a God who created the entirety of the universe. Here's a God who sustains the universe. Here's the God who took worship so seriously that those who tried to climb Mount Sinai were struck dead in an instant, that when Uzzah touched the Ark of the Covenant, he was struck dead, that when Korah and his family offered strange fire in God's presence, the earth opened up and swallowed them up. So he's a God that we should not take lightly. And yet, it says in verse 11 that we can rejoice with trembling. And so there is a possibility of coming into God's presence both with rejoicing and with reverence, both with relationship and with respect. And that's how we need to come before God. And that specifically is what the psalmist is calling these kings of the earth to do. Repent. How do you show that you've repented? Start worshiping God. How do we know that they're not worshiping God? Because in verse 2, they are opposing his anointed. So if you worship God, you have to accept the ruler that he's appointed, and you do it as you worship God through that, through that ruler in the case of Christ. Why should we do this? The alternative is wrath. Do homage to the Son. Uh, show reverent respect and submission to the Son. Why? So that he does not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Again, this is one of these concepts that we don't think about in our day, the wrath of God. We have songs about the love of God, the mercy of God. We don't really have very many songs about the wrath of God. It's not a popular subject. Why? Because if God is wrathful, that means there's a problem. And we don't want to admit that the problem is with us and that the problem is sin. We'd rather blame it on circumstances and other people and, and all of these other kinds of things and not acknowledge that there is a God who is angry against sin. And the only solution to God's anger against sin is that I turn away from that sin and that I turn to Him. And the specific sin here is the pride of thinking that if God has appointed a ruler, I can pick my own ruler and we can do that instead. But on the other hand, verse 12 also says this, How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And I trust that's where all of us are tonight that we take refuge in God, that we say, God is God, His appointed ruler is the one that we need to follow, that we trust in Jesus for our salvation, that we are finding our refuge and our help and our hope in Him. And so here's the, the question for us, for those who heard this psalm and for us today, and that's this. Am I going to submit to God's authority? For them, it was submitting to the Davidic king. For us, it's submitting to Christ as the greatest and final Davidic king. Am I going to submit to God's authority? Or am I going to go my own way? And what's the result? Just like we looked at last week. There's the, the wicked are like the chaff, the dust from uh, grain, threshing grain that the wind blows away. The righteous are like a tree with roots sunk deep into the ground. Here the picture is different. The, the wicked are those who are gathering against God, and it's as though the insects on the ground said, we don't like the fact 
that you built a house over here. We're going to rebel against you. What would her attitude be to that? That's foolishness. And yet, God says that he is a refuge, that we can be blessed if we take refuge in him. So, have you submitted to the Son by trusting in Jesus? I think would be the specific application for us. If you've done that, are you calling people around you to do that as well? Why is that important? Because those who do not submit to Christ who do not obey the gospel, as we've looked at over the last month and Sunday mornings and some in the evenings, are in the same position that those in verses 1 and 2 are in. They are opposing God. They're rebelling against God. They face, as it says in verse 12, the kindled wrath of God and His anointed. If we really believe that's true, how does it affect the conversations that we have with people around us? How does it affect the way that we live? How does it affect the seriousness of our lives? Are our lives consumed with all the things that people around us fill their lives with? And I'm convinced that many times we fill our lives with all these different things because the noise drowns out the accusation of our consciences and the stirring of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We don't have to acknowledge God if our lives are so full that we never have to stop and think about anything. And so do you stop? Do you think? Do you say, as it says in James, here's the Word of God. I look at it and I acknowledge that there is sin. That God has wrath against that sin. That He poured it out on Christ. That if I belong to Him, I shouldn't love that. I shouldn't want that. I should put it aside I should follow him. So how could we pray a passage like this as we go to our time of prayer? We could think back on our state before salvation. We could say, Lord, I was a sinner under your wrath. Thank you for saving me. What else could we pray? We could pray, Lord, come quickly because the nations are opposing you and mocking you and for the sake of your name, fulfill what you have promised, that you will come and rule over the nations triumphantly as the only worthy king. All of these kings that came before, David and Solomon and Ahaziah and all of these other ones, failed. But you will reign righteously and victoriously. Come, Lord Jesus. Or you can pray toward the end of that. Lord, here is a person who needs discernment. Here is a person who needs to take warning, just like these kings that are referred to in this psalm. Lord, help them to see that your wrath is about to be stirred up against them if they don't turn away from their sin. Do we pray like that? I know I often don't pray like that as I should, but I think as we look at this psalm, there are so many different things that we could pray for ourselves, for people around us, family, friends, and so forth, and just for the world generally. And so as we go to our time of prayer, I would encourage you to use some of the truths of this psalm in your time of prayer and uh, that we might honor God in that.